My name is David Orban, and I am very glad to have all of you following the show. Before we start, I want to remind you that even if we are live, you can always watch past episodes, both on Facebook and on YouTube. On YouTube, you can also subscribe to the channel. We also have a Discord community, and I invite you to join on davidorban.com discord. And finally, if you find the show valuable, as well as the other content that I produce and the knowledge that I share, you are welcome to become a supporter on Patreon at patreon.com slash David Orban. You may notice that uh, my audio is out of sync with the video. It is due to some upgrade that I attempted to do shortly before we started with the show. Evidently, I failed to be able to put everything all right. However, the good news is you will hear me speak as little as possible and our guest as much as possible. So this hopefully will not disturb you because his audio and video are perfectly in sync. Today's episode is radical longevity. The nature of aging and death and our relationship with it evolves with our understanding of the world and the technologies that we can deploy to keep our body in good health or heal it when we are sick. During the last 200 years, by dramatically lowering childhood mortality and maternal death, by improving sanitation and universal vaccination campaigns, by improving nutrition, we have been able to double the average life expectancy in the developed societies from less than 40 years to 80 years. What if we could keep going and look at each and every cause of death and systematically attack and eliminate it? That is what the perspective of radical longevity is. Today's guest is Aubrey de Grey. Aubrey is the biomedical gerontologist who devised the Sense platform and established Sense Research Foundation to implement it. He received his BA in computer science and PhD in biology from University of Cambridge in 1985 and 2000, respectively. He is editor-in-chief of Rejuvenation Research, is a fellow of both the Gerontological Society of America and the American Aging Association, and sits on the editorial and scientific advisory boards of numerous journals and organizations. So welcome, Aubrey de Grey. Well, welcome, David. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Let's start with defining what is the SENSE platform and why it does matter. Well, um, in order to do that, I think I probably ought to introduce my preferred definition of aging, first of all, because this is something that still engenders a lot of confusion. If you ask 10 people what aging is, you'll get 10 different answers, and that's really not helpful. So first of all, let me explain, in my view, what aging is, or to be more precise, a convenient definition of aging that helps to demystify it and to allow a sensible discussion about how we might deal with it. So aging is not just one thing, it's a combination of two processes. A process that happens throughout life, and then another process that happens late in life. The first process is simply the accumulation of damage in the body that is self-inflicted, that is generated by the body's normal operation, so our metabolism. That damage manifests as changes to the molecular and cellular structure of the body. And the body is set up to tolerate a lot of that change, which is why the body continues to operate well throughout most of life. But eventually, we end up with 
more damage than what the body is set up to tolerate. And that is when the second process kicks off. The second process is simply the decline in function of the body, both mentally and physically, arising from the fact that the body cannot fully withstand and tolerate the damage that it has inflicted upon itself since the beginning of life. Now, if we regard, if we um, remember that aging consists of those two processes, then it's easy to explain the sense approach and indeed why the sense approach is so much more promising than alternatives that people have pursued previously. A lot of people have thought of aging really as only the late life process, the process whereby we progressively go downhill. And therefore, they have developed or attempted to develop methods to treat the health problems of late life rather in the same way that we treat infections. In other words, um, essentially by trying to eliminate them from the body, which is really a non-starter because these things are side effects of being alive. And therefore, they are bound to carry on getting harder and harder to eliminate as the person gets older. Now, other people and this has been true for the past century or more, have taken the opposite approach. They've said, well, actually, aging is the left-hand process, the one that goes on throughout life where damage is generated. And these health problems of late life are simply the consequences of aging. And that has led people to say, well, okay, what we should really be trying to do in order to keep people healthier later in life is to somehow make our bodies run more cleanly to actually kind of make them, um, you know, generate damage more slowly than they normally would. And that's really the inspiration for the whole field that we call gerontology, or at least biomedical gerontology. But it is also actually a non-starter, because it requires us to have a really detailed and thorough understanding of the intricacies of how the body works. And we just don't have that. And we're not going to have it, not to a sufficient degree anyway, for a very long time to come. But if you don't make this oversimplification, if you don't just focus on one of those two processes, if instead you understand that aging is the combination of both of them, then it becomes obvious that there's a third option, namely not to actually abrogate either of the two processes, but simply to uncouple them from each other. And that can be done by repairing the damage by actually eliminating the damage from the body rather than trying to eliminate the consequences of the damage, in other words, the pathologies of late life. That turns out to be much more practical. I started talking about this maybe 20 years ago and started pointing out ways in which we could go about it. And gradually people understood what I was saying. And over the past 10 years, this has become a very mainstream orthodox idea. And I'm pleased to say that been able to create this organization around this, this concept, as you mentioned, David, Sense Research Foundation, but we are simply the hub of a very large ecosystem now that is growing all the time, both in the, especially in the private sector um, of startup companies pursuing various of these damage repair approaches. And uh, you mentioned uh, that you have been uh, doing this for a long time. Uh, this year is the 10th anniversary of H Plus Summit at Harvard, uh, where you were uh, kind enough to be one of our speakers. Uh, where um, Alex Leidman and I uh, organized a conference that uh, brought together a lot of people with radical ideas under the uh, umbrella uh, call of the rise of the citizen scientist. 
and uh, and and certainly uh, in the past uh, 10 years uh, the concept of uh, uh, the ability of repairing the damage that uh, all of us incur just by living has become from being uh, blasphemous uh, to um, more or less uh, better accepted by the uh, scientific uh, research and and uh, health uh, industry orthodoxy um, and and hopefully this uh, has been reflected also in your ability uh, to 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 conduct uh, your your mission uh, I want to um, uh, mention for example uh, the wonderful donation that uh, that you received from uh, Vitalik Buterin of over two million dollars uh, uh, as a part of his uh, desire to help uh, quite a few radical uh, 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 thinkers and doers. Um, so would you would you confirm and, and is it the case that uh, it has been less of a hard slog for the last few years than it has been uh, 20 years ago? Well, overall, you're absolutely right but the improvement has been unevenly distributed. Basically what has happened is partly because of my efforts and the efforts of others in educating the world with regard to the, uh, the, the promise of this damage repair approach, and partly because of actual progress in the laboratory, both in our laboratories in Mountain View, California, and also in other laboratories around the world the plausibility of the damage repair approach has risen in people's minds. And of course, that has resulted in more and more people with the ability to write large checks, and indeed more and more people with the ability to write small checks, um, coming along and doing so. So yes, funding has improved. But the difficulty is that most people, especially most people who write large checks, tend to be of an investor mindset rather than a philanthropic mindset. So Vitalik is an exception to this. He has, as you say, donated very generously to Sense Research Foundation. And as far as I know, he doesn't invest at all in this space. But most of our major wealthy supporters are on the other side of the spectrum. They're much more comfortable investing than donating. So that means that when a project gets to the point of investability, in other words, when it has progressed in terms of proof of concept and, if you like, de-risking to a point where early stage investors feel that they're able to take a risk and actually um, join the dots to eventual revenue, then, fantastic, the project can be spun out as a startup company and immediately it tends to be able to attract quite a, quite a lot of seed investment and thereby, of course, to move faster in terms of the actual science than it was possible to do beforehand. But the difficulty is that there are still quite a lot of areas of damage repair that have not reached that point, that are still too early stage to be viewed as investable, even by the kinds of investors that I talk to who are very comfortable with high risk, high reward. Uh, and they, therefore, those projects have to be continually funded, have to continue to be funded by philanthropy but, and to be done within the auspices of the Sense Research Foundation or other non-profits. So 
it's not become really any easier to get that money. We still have a budget of around four or five million dollars per year, which is basically flatlined for the past decade. You know, so we really badly need more money put into the pre-investable area, into the nonprofit side of this, in order to provide, if you like, a pipeline for the things that have become investable. Is it the case that uh, uh, since so much of this is in the early stages of uh, research and development or even uh, basic science, uh, nation states uh, should be more courageous uh, in, in investing? And, and if that is the case, um, are they doing it? If not, why, in, in your opinion? Well, I mean, yes, in principle, I completely would say that nation states that public money should be allocated to this kind of work to a much greater degree than it is. Not least because even if one just views the benefit as economic, and if one ignores the humanitarian benefit, still the argument for accelerating this research is overwhelming. However, it's not happening. And really the reason it's not been happening is very straightforward that the decision makers in governments around the world tend to be elected representatives who essentially have one thing in mind, namely to get re-elected, and therefore who will not rock the boat too much and allocate significant amount of taxpayer money to anything unless they think there are votes in it. So at the moment, it is beholden on people like myself, on thought leaders in this area, to focus on changing public opinion as a precursor to changing public policy. Now, <clears throat> I do want to qualify that a little bit, especially in the context of the current pandemic, because the pandemic may be, uh, uh, there may be a silver lining to it uh, in, the, in the form of an opportunity to concentrate the minds of decision makers and policy makers to a greater degree on the need to promote and accelerate research on the health of the elderly. We have, of course, seen that the coronavirus is particularly dangerous for the elderly. The, um, the, 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 the additional risk that one incurs if one was born a long time ago is even more sharp than it is for the typical infection like seasonal flu. Uh, so the research that is going on around the world to repair and rejuvenate the immune systems of the elderly is thrown into you know much greater focus and the successes the early stage successes that have occurred over the past few years in actually doing that in rejuvenating the immune system are areas that i believe we now have an opportunity to bring really prominently to the attention of people both in the private sector and in the end government who are in a position to write large checks and accelerate this work for the benefit of humanity in general, but for the elderly in particular. You mentioned the uh, dichotomy between um, the investor mindset and uh, the, the basic research or philanthropist uh, mindset. Uh, and uh, it is time uh, maybe to pull uh, our viewers uh, in the conversation as well. Um, uh, Jason Pontin uh, says hello, the former director of the MIT 
technology review. Um, uh, we just uh, pulled in uh, the stream uh, an article in his publication that you wrote uh, a few years ago. Uh, and uh, uh, we have also other people uh, saying hello from all over the world. The Shaista, uh, Gamma Chromatica via Twitter, uh, Lion uh, via Facebook, uh, and uh, uh, Muhammad, uh, who is uh, um, liking uh, the, the topic, uh, and he's asking about uh, life expectancy uh, as well as uh, Abbas uh, uh, talking about the, the the opposition of these two mindsets uh, that we that we mentioned, so uh, I invite uh, uh, the um, uh, viewers uh, to also formulate questions, please. And questions are defined very simply; they are short and they end with a question mark. So try to do that. But in the meantime, as we interpret uh, their remarks. Um, uh, do you have uh, in your own mind uh, uh, a definition for a maximum human lifespan? We read articles often, oh, we will never live more than 120 years. We will never live more than 150 years. And as far as I am concerned, um, I am always uh, uh, provocatively responding to those, let's do that and then just keep going and i want to think how interesting things are going to be when we will talk about millions of years or billions of years what about you what is your both personal philosophical as well as scientific uh, uh, point of view yeah i mean it's really painful isn't it um because it's obviously complete nonsense to suggest that there is some absolutely unbreachable li limit on how long people can live in the context of arbitrarily advanced medicine. Of course, it's true that there is a very clear limit on how long people can live in the absence of medicine or in the presence only of medicine of the sort that we have today. But it's really quite astonishing that people are willing to somehow confuse those two statements, um, you know, and, and, and genuinely seriously with a straight face suggest that medicine doesn't make any difference you know and the only reason i feel that anyone can even slightly get away with thinking that let alone saying it is because of what i've called the pro-aging trance the desperate need that so many people have to somehow find some way to avoid getting their hopes up and to get into a state where they can put aging out of their minds and not think about how long it's going to take and whether they personally are going to benefit from medicines that actually bring aging under comprehensive medical control. It's like, you know, I kind of have sympathy in the sense that, you know, it's just psychology and people do have fear of getting their hopes up. Um, but the fact is that it's an enormous barrier to getting this done and lives are being lost unnecessarily in the future as a result of the slowing of this research that um, is caused by people's you know, manufactured ambivalence about this and their desperation to try to pretend that aging is some kind of blessing in disguise. Um, uh, Emiliano is asking, uh, if uh, uh, <laughs> 2,000 years ago uh, life expectancy was uh, 35 uh, years, uh, what will be in the year 4,000? Okay, 
So, um, well, of course, even 200 years ago, life expectancy was about 35, even in the wealthiest countries in the world. And as we all know, it is more than twice that now. So the question is why? And of course, most of the answer is we've invented medicines that are able to prevent almost all deaths in early life. Uh, 200 years ago, even in the wealthiest countries, more than one third of babies would die before the age of one. And lots of people would die relatively early in life, like in childbirth, for example. And that tugs down the average very powerfully indeed. So once you've more or less eliminated that, you get life expectancy is around 80, the way we have now. Um, the question, of course, is, can this happen again? And it certainly cannot happen again as a result of further progress against infections, because at this point, very, very few people die of infections unless they have already suffered a lot of aging, which, of course, as I mentioned earlier, in relation to the pandemic, is a big topic right now. But what this means is that we need a whole new breakthrough. We need to bring medicine up to the point where it can effectively tackle the health problems that kill people at the age of 80 or plus or minus. And when we do that, we will, of course, see a further increase in longevity. Now, at the moment, we have a huge problem, especially a huge economic problem, arising from the fact that the things that kill people around 80 plus or minus kill people very slowly. They are chronic progressive conditions that are, therefore, first of all, uh, the cause of a great deal of suffering, more suffering than what is caused when someone dies quickly. Um, plus also, of course, they are the source of a great deal of economic hardship um, because it costs a lot to keep people alive in a poor state of health for a long time. So that's a bad thing. But what it means is that we have the prospect of making a sequence of breakthroughs over the next decades and centuries which add up to one breakthrough, one big breakthrough, because they essentially will constitute staying one step ahead of the problem, such that if we, for example, were in the next 20 or 30 years to develop medicines that gave people, let's say, 30 additional years of healthy life and gave it to people who were already, let's say, 60 at the time, then that would essentially buy time for researchers to continue to uh, you know, to improve the therapies, and version 2.0 would essentially re-rejuvenate the same people. So what this all adds up to in, in terms of answering the question about the distant future is that there is absolutely no limit on what can be achieved. The only uncertainty is how soon we will achieve step one. In other words, the um, extension of healthy life by 20 or 30 years, uh, which could take 20 years from now, or it could take 100 years from now if we get unlucky. But once we're there, we're going to stay there. We're going to easily stay one step ahead of the problem. And uh, you famously coined the expression longevity escape velocity uh, to succinctly uh, define this, uh, which is a, a, a wonderful term. And uh, we will go back to Emiliano, who is asking additional questions about the impl implications that you, what you just said, but Jason uh, also has a very specific question, which uh, demonstrates that he's well aware of uh, your work uh, and will need some definitions for the other listeners uh, instead. He's asking, where are we uh, with the MTOR uh, inhibitors? Mm -hmm. So could you uh, 
attempt to, to tell us what those are and then uh, tell uh, both Jason and everybody else uh, how are we doing with them. Yeah, uh, well, it's great to see Jason here. I'm sure he is turning in his metaphorical grave at the um, uh, positive spin that's currently being given by his erstwhile publication uh, with regard to this kind of work in contrast to his own um, skepticism with regard to it. However, um, the question about mTOR inhibitors is rather unrelated to my work because it does not relate to damage repair. Rather, it relates to the earlier paradigm of trying to make metabolism run more cleanly and thereby slow down the rate at which damage is created. So mTOR, or to be more precise, the two complexes, mTORC1 and mTORC2, are machines in the cell that are responsible for a variety of different, well, they participate in a variety of different processes that relate to the rate of accumulation of damage. And the, there have been a variety of findings over the past decade or more to the effect that if you inhibit these things, in particular if you inhibit mTORC1, then you can cause a substantial extension of longevity in model organisms in the laboratory. And indeed, you can even get this when you start relatively late in life. The amount of um, lifespan extension that is seen is comparable to what is seen when you implement calorie restriction, of course, the oldest and most established way of extending the lifespan of model organisms. So there's a great deal of interest in pharmacological interventions that do this safely and effectively in humans. And progress is certainly being made, and there are a variety of companies out there which are developing these things, and certainly the main progress that's been made is to develop um, drugs that inhibit mTORC1 without affecting mTORC2, and that's important because inhibiting mTORC2, which is something that did happen for the original um, inhibitor, rapamycin, uh, is something that actually has, has side effects that we don't want. Um, however, all of this must be viewed within the context of the fact that the mechanism by which these inhibitors actually extend life in model organisms appears to be a large component of the same mechanism that extends life under calorie restriction. And that means that we should not expect any, even future mTOR inhibitors to extend lifespan or indeed healthy lifespan any further than calorie restriction itself does. Which, in, which unfortunately, in the case of long-lived species such as human beings, is far less as a proportion of lifespan than what we see with short-lived rodents in the laboratory. So that's a bit of a, you know, a downer, but I don't want to stop there because I absolutely very much support and promote the um, development of these drugs because even if they only give a little bit of postponement of the health problems of late life, that's sure as hell better than nothing. And it gives, and furthermore, it, even at the level of, um, you know, just, public conversation, it gives people hope that we may be able to do better, which I believe, of course, we will be able to do with damage repair. Uh, one of the companies that, uh, I don't know if surprisingly to uh, its shareholders and followers, uh, but uh, unsurprisingly to those of us who uh, know how uh, deeply the founders were involved in advanced uh, thinking, for example, at Singularity University, uh, uh, that, that followed uh, through uh, with their interest around uh, uh, aging research and, and human longevity uh, is Google. Uh, 
uh, whose uh, uh, founders uh, believe in the power of uh, science uh, and, and uh, technology to profoundly change uh, how we live in, in many different uh, areas. And uh, they uh, created and, and very generously endowed uh, Calico uh, with, uh, with funding to um, uh, search for uh, tools and, 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 and ways that we can uh, prolong the, the human lifespan. What is uh, your um, uh, what is your view uh, uh, around uh, uh, that direction? And before you you answer, I want to convey Jason's uh, uh, thanks, who says uh, thank you. That is usefully specific, especially about the two pathways. So there you go. Uh, so so back to the question: What do you think of Calico? um in and and where are they going yeah so um I, i'm on public record on this so i'm not like um giving any news here i have basically nothing nice to say about calico it is an absolute catastrophic catastrophic waste of a very large amount of money and the blame for that lies entirely with larry and sergey themselves they hired the right person to run the company except that they didn't tell him what to do. And he then hired the wrong person to decide how to do the research. And essentially the whole, the whole place is a complete waste of money. The, they're doing great research, don't get me wrong. They've hired a fantastic team of really smart people, but the research is being absolutely misdirected in a manner that is not translational at all. They have obviously also a hugely talented team of biotech professionals who know exactly how to take a proof of concept to a product and to make money out of it and everything like that. But they don't have anything in the middle. They don't have anything that takes a concept to proof of concept. I don't think they even have anyone whose title is chief technology officer. So, you know, it's a disaster. And I, you know, I, have been trying to change this, of course, but without any success. Um, so I just hope that somebody else will come along with that kind of money or even a tenth of that kind of money and do it better. And of course, that is happening in a distributed way. The industry, consisting of startups uh, that have a bit more sense, um, is exploding exponentially, not least because there is an ex equally exponentially growing um, population of investors. Uh, so, so things are things are happening. Things are not all bad, but we sure as hell could be doing more if Calico actually had some sense. And let's talk about the sense uh, activities uh, themselves. Uh, where uh, on your website uh, you um, show three different kinds of of activities: intramural research, extramural research, and uh, uh, investments. So why don't you define how these uh, three activities uh, complement each other and maybe give uh, a, 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 an example uh, of, uh, of, of each uh, of the three? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So um, we started out, in fact, in the days before Sense Research Foundation existed and when it was only Methuselah Foundation doing extramural research. In other words, uh, spending small amounts of money sponsoring the occasional PhD student in a lab in a university um, that was doing work that we thought was highly relevant. And 
eventually, after a few more years, we grew to the point of being able to get our own physical facility, uh, which is in Mountain View, California. And at that uh, facility, we have maybe three or 4,000 square feet of lab space um, in which we do some of these projects ourselves. Um, the most important project in that regard, the biggest project, is our work on mitochondrial mutations. But we've always had a couple of other projects going on in parallel with that. And um, a variety of, uh, you know, a, a nice pipeline of projects that we've continued to fund extramurally in various um, in various uh, universities and institutes around the U.S. And, and occasionally outside of the U.S. In the past four or so years, we have started the third thing that you mentioned, namely investments. Specifically, what we've done is we've spun out at this point half a dozen of our projects into startup companies, and you've got a couple of them on the screen right there, Revel and Underdog are the two most recent ones, which we spun out last year. And these, um, these startup companies have successfully raised a bunch of seed money to um, take their things forward much faster than we could support them philanthropically. So we're very, very happy that this is happening. And I would say that, you know, it's, it's no exaggeration to say that this is our business model now, that we work on early stage translational rejuvenation biotechnology for as long as it takes to get those projects to a sufficient level of proof of concept that early stage investors will take an interest and we can create a company, transfer the IP. We generally take only a small stake in such companies because our main goal is not to dilute other investors um, and, uh, and the company moves forward. We're very, very happy with that business model. Ed, uh, I don't know whether you heard the expression or whether you believe it is uh, uh, applicable to, to what you do, but uh, others call this the venture studio model, where a team uh, uh, focuses on an, a, an idea, uh, brings it to a certain stage, uh, makes sure that there is the appropriate team around it, and then, as you said, spins it off so that it can flourish uh, on its own, uh, retaining a, a given percentage of the equity, whatever that is under the given model, uh, and uh, hoping that uh, there is a, a virtuous circle that uh, can be uh, ignited uh, so that uh, the whole system can, uh, can support itself. So yeah. this is a very yeah. innovative uh, uh, model that uh, um, I hope is uh, going to enable you to maintain the correct balance uh, between uh, uh, basic research, which uh, you want to keep doing, and the applicability uh, on a shorter period of uh, what that research implies. Yeah, absolutely. I had not actually heard that term venture studio, and I really like it. But you're quite right that uh, having this pipeline is vital to what we do. In fact, Many of the major, most active investors in our space who have been supporting these spin-out companies and also, of course, supporting other companies that have sprung up doing relevant work independently of us, they, are, they talk to us in a non-profit capacity as well, and they very often actually donate substantially to Sense Research Foundation partly because they support the work, you know, they, they just genuinely support the mission, but also from an investor st standpoint, they realize that by supporting this work philanthropically, they gain better access to early stage information that allows them to potentially be the founding investor in the next startup. And, you know, so there is 
um, that they're helping to create a pipeline for themselves. Um, Mohammed is asking if you are working on a corona vaccine, uh, and uh, that answer may be pretty short, but um, you mentioned corona. Does it have anything to do, <clears throat> sorry, uh, our uh, dynamic coexistence with uh, an ecosystem of viruses uh, is evolving. Uh, yes, uh, do you so, believe that it will have a more profound impact on, on your, your work? So we are not working directly on developing a coronavirus vaccine. We have only very limited immunology expertise within our group. And, um, you know, it's not really something that we would expect to be able to do better than other people. However, we very much hope that the work that we do both in, in, in the decline of the immune system with age and in relation to aging in general will, be, will benefit um, in terms of its funding and in terms of its activity and prominence uh, from the changed thinking, the, the greater um, you know, awareness of the risk of pandemics that has arisen and, of course, will continue to uh, develop over coming months and years among decision makers and policy makers. I think the message that we will all come back to uh, as this pandemic subsides is that we messed up, that we were overly you know, complacent as a species, you know, as a society, with regard to what the risk of pandemic really consisted of. And we did not make take measures to improve our preparedness and our preventative um, arsenal, uh, such as investment in infrastructure, investment in training and medical personnel, investment in um, stockpiling equipment and such like. The countries that appear to have done the best are ones that invested more in this area. Germany, for example, is highlighting the fact that it had a very much greater excess of intensive care units with ventilators in place already that allowed a larger proportion of people who were hospitalized with coronavirus to get the treatment they needed up front and actually have a better outcome. So I believe that we, we are likely to see this. And I believe that that can, that should, and indeed probably will extend to research. I've been complaining for many years about how scandalously under-resourced um, antibiotic development is. We all know that multi-drug resistance is coming, and we also all know that there are ways in which new antibiotics could be developed, but the amount of funding that's going into that work is pitiful, and that's got to change. And I believe it, there's a good chance that in the wake of the pandemic, it will change. Um, you mentioned uh, uh, countries that uh, were better prepared for pandemics. Um, what is uh, your view um, on a worldwide basis of countries that are more um, that, that are readily accepting of your ideas and your kind of research? And is that um, reflected in the way that sense itself is organized? Um, you started originally in the UK and then you moved uh, to, to the US to set up SENSE uh, locally so that local donors uh, could uh, make donations that are tax deductible. But uh, even though uh, a lot of money is in the US, there is a lot of money in China as well. And Chinese people are getting old too and they may want to extend their own life. Uh, how uh, 
what is your strategy in terms of of of, of leveraging this interest uh, uh, worldwide? Sure. So th there's not actually all that much difference between different countries in terms of general acceptance by the scientific community of the promise and feasibility of this kind of work. There's a bit of a, a spectrum. Uh, certainly the UK suffered from having just a couple of very prominent gerontologists who were particularly vocal in their scepticism with regard to sense, and that slowed things down for a while relative to, for example, the US or Europe. But by and large, there's not much difference. The bigger differences, the, the wider spectrum that occurs, is more cultural. Simply, you know, there's much less of a culture of philanthropy in some parts of the world than in others. And that slows things down at the early stage. There's also, um, you know, less a, a spectrum with regard to the culture of entrepreneurialism in terms of early stage companies. Certainly, we see a big difference uh, between the US and Europe in that regard. It's... Um, and, and it extends to the very earliest stages. For example, um, uh, European universities have, uh, I think, probably a rather well-deserved poor reputation for their ability to mediate technology transfer deals with startup companies and investors when compared with the much more sophisticated and perhaps you know, advanced um, uh, protocols that exist for US university tech transfer. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of imperfections and different countries, different areas of the world have different, um, you know, shortcomings and different hurdles to cross. But, you know, I try to, I try to help everybody, um, you know, to, to, to educate everybody and to address these issues and put the right people in touch with the right other people so as to, um, you know, to, to overcome these obstacles, and it seems to be working step by step. Uh, we have a question from Alberto Rizzoli. Uh, he is asking, how topically sparse is research in aging? Are there major differences between cosmetic, organ-related, eyes, etc.? And is there a branch that relates to all of them? Yeah, this is a great question because, of course, there's a lot of money in cosmetics. There's a lot of, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a lot easier to put together a business that makes money quickly if you can use your technology to create a cosmetic that works better than before. Now, the great news is that at the, un, at the level of underlying damage, which is the level that Sands Research Foundation and the Sands Philosophy focuses on, um, there is indeed a great deal of unification there. The... Um, Types of damage that we accumulate are many and varied, and I normally describe them as grouped into seven major categories. But those categories apply equally to the physiological decline that we see in terms of people's appearance and their physiological decline in terms of how well they function. So let me use one example, which is one of our most recent spin-outs, Revel Pharmaceuticals. The focus there in terms of technology is on the elimination of chemical crosslinks that accumulate in the body between amino acids of long-lived proteins like collagen and elastin that have a very <clears throat> low turnover rate in the body. Now, these crosslinks matter because they reduce the elasticity of the network of extracellular proteins that are involved. And that chemistry is exactly the same 
in the major arteries and in the skin. So in other words, the same phenomenon at the molecular level contributes to high blood pressure in the elderly, which is often, which is to some extent caused by this increasing stiffness, this loss of elasticity, and also the um, wrinkling of skin, the fact that the skin becomes less elastic over time. And therefore, Revel is quite likely to start out developing cross-link breakers for cosmetic purposes, even though the main reason that we funded the underlying research and the main reason why Revel wants to go forward in the long run is for the actual life-threatening phenomenon of restoring arterial suppleness and elasticity. Wonderful, and I'm very glad that these questions are coming in. Um, I know that uh, in nine minutes you have to go. I want to go back to uh, uh, one of the questions that Emiliano asked, uh, and and uh, it gives us uh, uh, an opportunity to broaden our perspectives uh, uh, in, in, in many ways. Um, he's asking about uh, implications of uh, humans uh, becoming a, a, a cyborg. And of course, uh, we already are. Uh, in uh, uh, many ways, uh, uh, pacemakers uh, have been helping uh, people survive uh, for uh, a long time. Uh, I have uh, glasses or contact lenses. Uh, uh, many of us uh, had uh, various types of operations that even if they didn't end up giving us some kind of an implant, they wouldn't be possible without the mechanical components of our technology civilization. So in that sense, we are already cyborgs. However, from the point of view of the sense strategy, do you stop at uh, uh, the biological part of uh, uh, damage control? Or uh, if a part needs to be discarded and replaced by a quotation marks mechanical one, is that still fine to end with the biggest uh, uh, organs uh, of all, our uh, neural uh, uh, system, and the potential uh, 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 computer replacement for the brain? So, right. so what yeah, are your yeah. positions on, on, on those approaches too? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, our, activities, <clears throat> excuse me, our activities at Sense Research Foundation do not extend to any of these, shall we call them non-biological, approaches to medical problems. But the philosophy absolutely is agnostic about this. I have no problem whatsoever with non-biological solutions. You're quite right to mention glasses and contact lenses and indeed pacemakers and cochlear implants and so on. And I think it's inevitable that the, the breadth and the applicability of such solutions will increase over time, not least because of miniaturization which allows things to be done that could not be done at a large scale. Um, whether we replace whole organs with artificial organs, like artificial hearts, you know, this is something that's coming. And indeed, the brain is not um, an exception here. There are parts of the brain which do not contain any aspect of our personality or our memories and so on, and where research is um, very much going on to replace them. For example, the hippocampus. People have been developing an artificial hippocampus for some time. So this is definitely a very um, valid and legitimate area of research, and I very much hope that it will continue to flourish. However, 
I, you know, I think there is a terminology issue here. I think, um, you know, the use of the word cyborg does more harm than good because it scares people. Uh, whereas talking about glasses and pacemakers and cochlear implants doesn't scare people. And so I feel it's very important to emphasize the, the continuity here, the fact that we are simply, um, you know, augmenting and adding on more and more different examples of perfectly straightforward medical technology that happens not to be made out of wet stuff. You know, it's for the, so I take the same view as I do with regard to the word transhumanism. I tend to run away very fast when people call me a transhumanist, even though I am certainly in favor of all of the technologies that are grouped under that heading, because I feel that a much better way to describe this whole way of thinking and way of developing technology is to emphasize that the technology developments we've seen so far since, you know, since the dawn of civilization are a good thing. And we simply need to continue that process. If we look, talk, if we turn to address the end of your question, if we talk about uploading the essentially completion of the process of turning it into non-biological um, entities, of course, we have no idea at this point whether that is even theoretically possible because we just don't know enough about the structural nature of personality and consciousness and um, memory to be able to know whether it can actually function on different hardware. And then, of course, we have the additional problems of how the transfer would be done in a manner that preserves continuity of identity. But I'm not saying that I, any of these questions are obviously showstoppers. I, and I, I, again, you know, if progress were made in developing ways to do such things that somehow overtake the progress made uh, in the approach that we pursue, the boring wet way, then, you know, I, I'll be very interested. And, and similarly, I would assume uh, about cryonics, uh, which is bridge building towards a future uh, where those uh, approaches that don't work today can repair the damage that uh, we want to be repaired. <clears throat> right, yes. I think it's a complete tragedy that cryonics still has a reputation for being complete science fiction because there is extraordinarily promising research going on, including from in one of our spin-outs, actually, Aragos Pharmaceuticals, um, that is finding ways to minimize and pretty much eliminate the damage that is done to biological tissue in the process of freezing it and taking it down to liquid nitrogen temperatures. Um, and once that damage is eliminated or almost eliminated, we open up huge possibilities. The possibilities that Aragos are pursuing and indeed <clears throat> other groups are interested in too, of course, revolves not around cryonics, but around organ preservation and banking for organ transplantation, where we have an enormous um, issue of shortage of supply of organs for people that are sufficiently immunocompatible um, uh, immuno with the recipient. Uh, this could be completely solved if we could bank organs uh, in a long-term way at low temperatures. Uh, but yes, absolutely. The concept of cryonics is every bit as feasible as that, and it's a scandal that is still being rejected so widely. So um, I assume uh, we can end uh, inviting all of our viewers uh, to go and visit uh, sense.org, either to donate or to become part of one of the research teams or apply to be so, or bring ideas that can be uh, uh, research or, or uh, investment oriented. Uh, and uh, and uh, Aubrey, I, I thank you greatly for your 
kind uh, availability. And uh, I think that uh, we can also end uh, with Emiliano's uh, uh, very positive message. I can only he hope to see you again in 100 years. And uh, I am happy to uh, put it in our calendar. Um, I had uh, Stephen Wolfram on the show uh, last week. And uh, we took note that uh, we will uh, meet uh, in April 23rd, 2030 for an update. Uh, and so you and I can take note uh, to meet in uh, uh, 2120 uh, at the end of April uh, to, to have an update as well. Well, thank you very much, David, for having me on the show. And thanks to all the viewers for your participation. So thank you very much for joining us today on uh, Searching for the Question Live. If you speak Italian, I invite you to join and subscribe also to our Italian language uh, YouTube channel on davidorban.com slash YouTube Italiano. Thanks to our supporters on Patreon who helped me and my team produce uh, this content and see you at the next episode of Searching for the Question Live.